You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24 this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm currently on staff at Midtown Downtown, just a few miles from here, getting ready to be sent out next summer to Charlotte to plant a church called Citizens Church. And so excited about that. Um, more excited to bring God's word to you this morning, though. 1 Samuel 24. We got to jump back a little bit in our uh, chronology, our timeline of David's life. So you guys uh, have started with a lot of really bad things that David has done, his sinful acts against Bathsheba and Uriah, his, his con- confrontation that Nathan brought to him. We uh, started instead over at downtown with some of the good things back before even David was king. And so we're going to jump back there this morning. So David is not king in this story that we're going to talk about. Rather, Israel has their very first king, King Saul. Saul is the first of the anointed kings of Israel. And so what we're going to read this morning is that Saul and David do not get along at all. Saul knows, as we're going to see, that God has taken the kingdom from him and that he has anointed David to be the king. And so Saul has it out for David. And so I got to warn you this morning, it's a little bit of a Forrest Gump sermon. Anybody seen the movie Forrest Gump? Yeah, so Forrest Gump starts with Forrest, the main character, sitting on a park bench waiting for a bus. And then what you find out throughout the rest of the movie is why this bench is so important and why he's sitting there waiting. And that's actually what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start not on a park bench, but in a cave. And we're going to look back through the rest of our time to see why this cave is so important and what is going on here. And I got to warn you, we have a ton of scripture this morning, but I know that you guys love God's word, and so we're going to love it. We're going to be excited about it. 1 Samuel 24, we're going to start in verse 1. If you need a Bible, there should be some some on the seat backs. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So at this point, Saul has been chasing David for about four or five years trying to kill him. So he's thrown three spears at David trying to kill him. He's hunted him down. He has slaughtered people all because they're helping David. He is out to get him. Verse two, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. I love the details of the Bible. Right? This is how you know. This is not just men writing. This is inspired word of God written by the Holy Spirit. Men who as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit because it doesn't leave out any of the details of humanity. Right, so here's Saul chasing David, trying to kill David, and he's got to take a bathroom break. No loves or pilots, no truck stops. So he goes into the cave. Keep reading. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So this was a movie. You would hear the music rising. Right? Dun, 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 dun. Just hitting the toms. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Here's Saul using the bathroom in the cave. David and his men, who he's been chasing for five years, and this is their moment. Saul is quite literally in a vulnerable position, and David can take him out. 
All right, pause there. We're going to go back to the beginning. All right, I got to tell you the full story of why this moment matters so much more than just the tension that they've been experiencing. I got to show you this. So jump back, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Here's the story before we get there. So Saul like I said, was the first anointed king of Israel, not David. So the people of God, the Israelites, were whining, and they were complaining, and they were asking God, God, we need a king. God, give us a king. And God's like, I'm your king. And they say, no, we need a better king. We need an earthly king. All these other nations have kings. Give us a king. And God says, this is going to be a bad idea. But they keep asking, and they keep asking. And so finally, he gives them a king, which is a word to us. Be careful what you ask God for, because he just might give it to you. So finally, he gives them a king, and this king is Saul. And so what happens is Saul is out running an errand for his dad. He's going to retrieve some donkeys to bring them back to the family farm. And while he's on the way, he comes across uh, God's prophet, Samuel. And God tells Samuel, this is my first anointed king. I want you to anoint Saul as king. And so Samuel goes, and in a private ceremony, he anoints Saul as king. So Saul comes back, he returns home, and he, he runs into his uncle, and his uncle says, hey, Saul, tell me about your trip. Did you find the donkeys? How did it go? And Saul tells his uncle every single thing that happened except the fact that he just got anointed as king, which seems like an inconsequential detail, except it's not. It's the first picture we have in Saul's life, Saul's life that he is unwilling to trust God. Samuel has said, you're the king. And Saul doesn't want to tell anybody. So Samuel comes back, and they're going to do a public coronation ceremony. And that's where we pick it up, 1 Samuel 10, verse 20. It says, Then Samuel brought all of the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So Saul's kingship has already been anointed. It's already been determined by God. But Samuel's out here casting lots. He's rolling the dice. And we don't know why. We don't know if he does this to prove it to himself that this is God's king, to prove it to the people that it's God's king, to prove it to Saul that he's God's king. But we know that he's, he's out here and he's casting lots and the lots fall with Saul. Keep going. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So Samuel says, all right, we got your king. You asked for it. Here you go. And they're like, this sounds awesome. That sounds great. Where is he? <laughs> and so they pray and God says, have you checked the luggage? So they go and they find Saul hiding among the luggage. Further evidence, Saul is unwilling to trust God. That's the story of Saul's life. We could walk through, if we had the time, story after story, example after example of Saul being unwilling to trust God. It's not that he's just afraid to be king. It's not just that he's just afraid to step up to the task. He is unwilling to trust. God has said something and declared something over his life, and he is unwilling to step into it because he doesn't trust God. So I just want to show you two examples. Two examples this morning of Saul's uh, unwillingness to trust God, this pattern in Saul's life of an unwillingness to trust God. Example number one is Saul's wrongful sacrifice. Saul's wrongful sacrifice. 
So after his coronation, Samuel gives Saul explicit instructions. He says, all right, Saul, I need you to go to a place called Gilgal, and I need you to wait there seven days. And at the end of the seven days, I'm going to come to you. We're going to offer some sacrifices, and then we're going to go whoop up on some Philistines. That's what he says. And you got to know, so this is, uh, Samuel is a prophet from God. And in those days, one of the primary ways that God spoke to his people was through the prophets. And so when Samuel tells Saul to go and to wait seven days and to wait on him to offer a sacrifice, it's not some buddy-to-buddy advice, all right? This is not some just political, hey, think about this as one of your advisors. He's actually saying, hey, the Lord wants you to go, and he wants you to wait on me, and then we're going to sacrifice together. Pick it up, 1 Samuel um, 13, verse 8. It says, he waited seven days, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So God commanded Saul through Samuel to wait seven days. Samuel was going to come and offer the sacrifices. Saul doesn't listen. He doesn't do it. He doesn't trust God. He takes matters into his own hands. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came Perfect timing. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul just comes up with all these excuses. Look at him. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Look at this. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul says, Samuel, you don't understand. You weren't there. You didn't get it. The people, they were, they were scattering from me. The Philistines, they were pressing in on us. You don't understand. You weren't there. You don't know what I was going through. I didn't want to. I had to. Since I forced myself to do it. Here's what he's saying here. Here's how we would say it in our days. Yeah, yeah I know I wasn't supposed to, but my circumstances dictated my disobedience. <laughs> My circumstances, what was pressing in and out. Yeah, yeah, I know I didn't. I wasn't supposed to do that, but you don't get what I was going through. You weren't there. You don't, you don't get how stressful my job was. You don't get how disobedient my kids were being, how frustrated my kids were, were making me. Saul's letting his circumstances dictate, drive, determine his disobedience. That's Saul's pattern in his life. That's what he's going to continue to do, continue to say. Here's what Samuel replies, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So Samuel hints at what Saul's unwillingness to trust God is going to cost him. It's going to cost him the kingdom. Sin has very real consequences. It affects us. That's example number one. Example, example number two, Saul and the Amalekites. Saul and the Amalekites. Skip down to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. I promise we're going to get back to the cave eventually. So Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Saul, God anoint, sent me to anoint you as king and God has a job for you to do. So here's the backstory. When the Israelites uh, were enslaved to, to Egypt, right, to the Egyptians in Exodus, God sent Moses and he delivered them from the Egyptian captivity, right? And he led them into the wilderness, into a period of wandering. 
What is true in that time is that if you were in the wilderness, if you didn't have a city, that you were very vulnerable to other nations, to the elements. You couldn't put down roots. You couldn't have walls of a city to protect you and to fortify you. You couldn't plant crops and provide for yourself because you were just on the move. And so God's people were led out of slavery, led out of captivity in Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness. And nation after nation was kind to them. They took care of them. They, they cared about them. They provided for them. Every nation they came across took care of them and helped them except for one. And that was the Amalekites. The Amalekites saw the Israelites, saw God's people in harm, in, in, in threat to harm. He saw them wandering, no protection, no help. And they said, let's get after them. Let's go get them. And so the Amalekites attacked them. They went against God's people. And so God says, hey, I remembered that. I remembered what they did to you. I remember when you were vulnerable and you were outcast and you were wandering in the wilderness. And I remember how these people went against you to harm you. I remembered that. And so he says to Saul through Samuel, I want you to go and I want you to be my instrument of justice. I want you to be my instrument. And I want you to wipe them all out. So what God says, he says, every single one, don't leave any of them, don't leave any crops, don't leave any animals, wipe them all out, which might sound like, whoa, right? God says, wipe out an entire people group. But here's what you got to know about our God is our God does not let injustice or oppression go unrectified and unhelped. And so he sees in his goodness, in his kindness, he sees, I remember when my people were marginalized and pushed aside and oppressed and without help. And I remember how these people came and took advantage of them and pushed them down and attacked them. And I will not let that go unanswered for. God is a God of justice and goodness. And so he sends Saul against the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15, verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. They took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, whoa, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So God says, go destroy everything. Saul doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He disobeys again. And then I love this next part. So Samuel shows up. We're not going to read it, but Samuel shows up. And he's like, all right, Saul, did you, did you do it? And Saul says, yep. And Samuel's next line is literally, well, then why do I hear this sheep crying? Which I think is so, like, Saul's there, like, yep, I killed all of them, all the sheep especially. Are you sure the sheep? All the sheep. And then you just see this little lamb kind of come up behind Saul, and Samuel's like, are you serious? Like, all, and she's like, bad. I think it's hilarious. Details of the Bible. We'll talk about it later. It's fine. Verse 17, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil? Notice this, underline it. If you're the type of person who writes in your Bible, underline it. Why did you do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So the sight of the Lord is a theme throughout the Old Testament. And it's often put up against the sight of man or what's right in the, the eyes of man. So what happens there when we don't trust God is this deeper reality that we think our sight is better than God's sight. 
that we think the way that we see things is better than the way that God sees things, that we think we know more or understand more or see more or see clearer than God sees or knows or understands. It's his sight versus our sight. Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But, notice this, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord. Notice who? The Lord, your God in Gilgal. So Saul starts pointing fingers. He's like, I, I did all my part of the people. Like these people, these people you gave me to lead, uh, they didn't, it was their fault. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He says, Saul, it's not about what's doing right in your eyes. It's about doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. It's not about what you thought was right. It's about what is right. And God is the one who determines that. God is the one who declares that. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Here's what he's saying. He says, rebellion and assuming you know better than God are just as bad as witchcraft and idolatry. Which if you're like me, that hits, right? Assuming you know God, rebelling against God is just as worthy of God's justice and punishment as witchcraft or idolatry of worshiping false gods. It says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. He reminds Saul, the kingdom's taken from you. You're no longer gonna be king. Your sons are not gonna be king. Your kingdom is, is done. All right, I wanna pause here. Promise we're getting back to the cave. I just wanna show you why this matters, right? Why are we talking so much about Saul and his lack of trust in God? Chances are, if you're like me, these examples aren't really hidden specifically, Right, So it's like chances are tomorrow morning you're going to wake up, go to work, or, or head uh, to, to parent your kids or whatever, and you're not going to be faced with some of these temptations that Saul was faced with. Right? So you're not going to head into work and go, oh, should I offer the sacrifice or not today? I don't know. Right? You're not going to show up and your boss is going to be like, hey, you want to be king? No, nah, I'm going to go hide in the luggage. Right? This is not our specific temptations, but here is the reality. What Saul is facing, the bigger picture of what he's facing is what each and, us, each and every one of us face every single day, and that's this. Will we trust God or will we go our own way? That's what Saul is facing, all these circumstances. God says, do this, and Saul's pressed by his circumstances, by what's going on around him, and he has to decide, do I follow the way of Jesus? Do I follow what God says or do I go my own way? And all of us face this decision after decision. This afternoon, you're going to walk through decision after decision where you have to decide, do I follow and trust God or do, do I do my own thing? Every area of your life, money, right? Are you going to trust him? Right? When the bills are pressing, when that bank account's just getting a little bit lower, when you got that next payment, and then Ann gets up and says, hey, we're trying to do a gift project. We're trying to help chur plant churches in Greenville and in inner city Columbia. Are you guys going to give and give sacrificially? Or you, ah, I don't know. I know, God, I know God said, I know God said that, that where my treasure is, my heart will be there also. But I just, I don't know. We have to make the decision. Do we trust God or do we go our own way? Parents, kids. Or do you think about parenting your kids? Are you going to trust what God has called you into? Are you going to trust that, that ultimately he is the one who saves, but that you play a role in shaping them towards Jesus? Or are you going to back off and go, ah, it's too much. It's too hard. Are you going to clamp down so much and go, no, I'm in control of everything. 
Do we trust God or do we go our own way? Relationships, right? When singleness just gets a little bit more lonely than we need or that we want. When our marriages just aren't as fulfilling as we thought they were gonna be. When our spouses just let themselves go just a little bit. We're gonna trust that God has invited us into our lot in life or we're gonna go our own way. I'll just find somebody new. I'll just, I'll just marry them regardless. Are we going to trust God or are we going to go our own way? Are we going to trust God or are we going to go our own way? Decision after decision after decision after decision. Will we trust him? What do we do when the dilemmas of our lives press us? What do we do? That's what happens to Saul throughout his life. He's pressed time and time again. Is he going to follow God or is he going to go his own way? And that's where David's at. First Samuel 24. We made it back to the cave. Good job. Here's David, hidden deep in the cave. Saul, who's been trying to kill him for four or five years, doesn't know that he's there in a vulnerable spot. And David has his chance. He's got his sword ready. He can take him out. Some of y'all would do anything to be in David's position, right? You got that person in your life? Maybe they're not keeping you from being king, but man, they're annoying. I just feels like that coworker, that boss, they're just, they're just out to get me. Ooh, if I had my shot, if I had my chance. Not like literally kill them, okay? Well, we all know that. Well, I'll do what it would take. That's David's, that's where he's at. That's his spot. Verse four. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Notice this, it's not God saying this to David, it's his men. His men are saying, hey, this is your shot. Surely God gave it to you, right? Surely the Lord told you to go for it. Shouldn't you just go, don't you, don't you know? It's not God, it's his men. They're giving him bad advice. Keep going, then David arose. He arose, he, he goes towards Saul and notice this, he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So notice Saul leads his men towards disobedience. David leads his men towards obedience. He says, no, these people that I lead, I'm not going to attack him. You're not going to attack him. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Verse eight, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men and say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Verse 12, this is the key. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David, let Saul know, I was in the cave. You can tell by the corner of this robe, I could have taken you out, but he didn't. Why verse 12? I'm gonna let the Lord avenge. I'm gonna let the Lord judge. I'm gonna let the Lord work it out. I'm gonna trust God with my kingship. I'm gonna trust God with my future. I'm not gonna take matters into my own hands. What he said goes. 
Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Verse 20, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Now the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. So what happens is the corner of Saul's robe that he holds up tells Saul all that he needs to know. All, everything that Samuel said, the kingdom is gone. The kingdom is no longer his. The kingship is taken away from him. That corner of the robe tells Saul, in every way that I have failed to trust God, David has succeeded. And I didn't listen to God. I went my own way. When my circumstances pressed me, when opportunities arose before me, I chased after them. I didn't trust God, but David does. When Saul goes against God's commands, David chooses faith over fear. David chooses trust over disobedience. David chooses God's plan over his plan. But here's the reality for us this morning, church. Here's the reality. When it comes to this part of David's life, David and Saul, you and I are so much more like Saul than we are like David. We're so much more like Saul, so much more. When our, our circumstances press us, when things get iffy in our lives, when we're just pressed from every side, we are so much more likely to choose the way of distrust than the way of trust. We're so much more likely to go our own way or do our own thing or try to make it happen on our own. Say, yeah, I know God said but, I mean, this is, this is the one for me. This is the one I hear all of the time in my life group and in the people around me. This is what the distrust looks like. It looks like, yeah, yeah, I know God said, but. I, I know the Bible says, but. Y'all ever been in life group with that person? You ever been that person? Right, somebody's trying to remind you of truth, trying to tell you about God's word, trying to remind you of the gospel, and you're like, yeah, 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 I know, I know, but. Really, like, yeah, I, totally, I, I know, I know God says that I'm, I'm married and so I shouldn't be going there. I shouldn't be flirting with my coworker. I know that, but, but I'm just not getting it at home. They're just not showing me the attention that I want. They're just not showing me the affection that I want. Yeah, yeah, I know God says I'm not supposed to date that non-Christian, but I mean, I really think I can change them. Like, I, I, and like, if I don't, then like, I mean, what's hope, what's hope for them, right? Jesus, but that's another, we'll talk about that later, right? <laughs> Like, I know, I know God says that, that where my treasure is, my heart will be also, but like, I just don't really trust the church and what they do with money. Or like, I got that bill that I willingly took on for that car. Come on. Right, some of us were like, ah, oh, yeah, like I know, I know God said I'm supposed to walk in community. Like, I know he said I'm supposed to be around other believers that are gonna encourage me and I'm gonna encourage them and we're gonna push each other towards Jesus, but like, people just kind of make me tired sometimes. Or like, I just get a little bit socially anxious. Or like, ah, my job is really hard and I'm just tired. Have I hit you yet? Right? I, I, know, I know God said, but uh, I know God said, forgive as he's forgiven me. I know that I'm supposed to forgive, but they hurt me like real bad. Like they said some stuff. And I got boundaries and they haven't asked forgiveness. Right, and God wouldn't want me to, to break my boundaries and forgive even though they haven't asked for it, and I don't want to be unhealthy, right? <laughs> time and time again, yeah, I know God said, but. I know God said, but. I know the Bible says, yeah, totally, but. You don't get it. 
yeah, totally, I hear you, brother, but you don't get it. Sister, I hear you, but you don't get it. You're not in my shoes. You're not in my circumstances. You're not walking my life. You don't know how hard it is for me. Here's what's going on there. Every time that we don't trust God, we are willingly choosing to say, he doesn't see what I see, and he doesn't know what I'm going through, and he doesn't understand like I understand. As if we're waiting for God to be up there going, oh, you're right, my bad. As if we're waiting for him to go, oh, you know, I know I said that you should do that, but you, no, you're right. I didn't know how hard your job is. You're right. You're right, my fault. My, yeah, I know, like, I told you to love one another, but, like, I didn't realize you were going to be in that life group. My fault. Right? As if what we go through is uncommon to man. Scripture says, no, no temptation has overtaken you except that it's common to man. None of us are the exception in the room. None of our circumstances are the exception in the room. As if our life is harder than the people around us. And get it, listen, I know some of us have gone through some stuff, okay? So don't hear me discrediting that and disqualifying that. Some of us have walked through some very real pain and suffering and hurt in our lives. I get that. But y'all, it's hard for all of us. It's hard for every single one of us. Every single person in your life group, it was not easy for them to show up. We have this false idea that we are the exception and that our godliness is harder to get than others. And so we think we have this false, we have this false perception that we're walking around and, and, oh yeah, it's hard for us and we can't follow God, but every single other person is walking around just choosing Jesus like it's nothing. Just walking around going, oh, la di da da no to that sin. I'm going to say no to that sin. I'm going to read my Bible for an hour. I have so much energy and free time. No! It's not hard. It's not easy for any of us. It's hard for all of us. Every single person that shows up to your group on a Tuesday, it was hard for them to get there. You are not the exception. That should be an encouragement to you. I'm not trying to minimize. I'm trying to, trying to say, hey, evaluate. God's not surprised by your circumstances. He's not surprised by what's going on around you, and yet he says he is faithful. That's what that next part of that verse says. It says, no temptation is overtaking you except that is common to man. The next part says, but God is faithful to provide a way out. Doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are. Doesn't matter how pressing those decisions are. Doesn't matter how overwhelming the stressfulness of it all is. God says, I am faithful. And so none of us are the exception, but even better news than that, God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. We know that because there's a true and better David that has come. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the true and better David. And the same reason, the same exact reason why Saul can trust David is the same reason why we can trust Jesus is because he didn't treat us like we deserved. All right, that's what Saul says. Verse 17, let's read it again. Verse 17, he says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. It's the good news of the gospel, right? Jesus could have repaid us as we deserved. He could have given us what we deserved, and yet he doesn't. He treats us so much better than we deserve. He doesn't give us, right? We give him evil. We repay him evil all the time, and he just gives us good after good after good. Jesus never treats us like we deserve. When we were his enemy, Jesus comes for us. When we were in rebellion against him, when we were running away from him, Jesus claims us as his own. When we were busy making everything else in our lives, king and ruler and Lord, Jesus declares his kingship by his blood at great cost to him, a great sacrifice to him. 
It's the good news. He doesn't repay us. He doesn't give us what we deserved. You and I are the ones who deserved the cross, and yet Jesus went on our behalf. It's the good news of the gospel, that he repays us good, even though we're his enemies, even though we give him evil. I love Saul's response. That's, That's our response this morning. Saul ends, verse 20, read it again. He says, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul says, you could have taken me out. David, you had every right and every opportunity to take me out, and yet you didn't. You could have taken me, and yet you didn't. You're the king. That's Saul's response. You're you're the king, and we are meant to read this and think, oh yeah, Jesus had every right to take us out, and yet he didn't, so surely he's the king. What else could he be? Why wouldn't we trust him? Why wouldn't we go after him? Why wouldn't we love him? Why wouldn't we give our lives away for him? He's the king. He could have repaid us evil. He could have given us evil, and yet he doesn't. He gives us good, and he gives us himself. He's the king. So one application for us this morning, as Brent comes back up, one application for us this morning, and that's to trust him. To trust him. Whether for the, the first time for salvation or the millionth time for life and godliness, trust him. He's the good and perfect and wonderful king. When when your circumstances and situations press you, when your circumstances want to dictate your disobedience, trust him. Trust the path that he has laid out. Trust the commands that he has given. Trust the guardrails that he has set up. Trust him. When all you want in life is to go after X and everyone around you says, go after X, and God says, no, Y, choose Y, trust him. Trust him. It's worth it. It's hard, and it's worth it. Trust him. He's the good and true and perfect king who didn't treat us like we deserved, but rather he poured out his wrath, his justice on his son on our behalf. That's what we celebrate every Sunday when we celebrate communion, where we celebrate our crucified and resurrected Savior, right, who's the king who didn't treat us like we deserved, but gave himself up for us. Like we see in 1 Samuel 24, David walks out of the cave proclaiming grace and love on Saul. Jesus walks out of the grave proclaiming grace and love on us, on all who would trust in him. So we celebrate his body, we celebrate his blood, willingly given and shed for us. That's what we're gonna do here in a moment. I'm gonna pray for us and we're going to take communion, and we're going to remember the good news of Jesus, the true and better David, the true and better king. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for New Testament and Old. Thank you for the Old Testament that just is full of pictures and pointing to you and the Messiah who came, and these examples of how to live, how not to live how to trust you, how, how not to trust you, how to, how to not go our own way. God, these, these beautiful examples that we have of David and of Saul, what to do, what not to do, what to believe, what not to believe, what to love and what not to love. God, but thank you that all of it, all righteousness, all holiness, all right living, all right standing was fulfilled in Christ. And it's no longer about what we can do or can't do. It's no longer about our striving or earning or achieving, but it's about him who has paid it all, him who was our perfect righteousness, he who was the spotless lamb, 
He who was the great high priest, both the sacrifice and the mediator, both the one who went to the cross and shed his blood on our behalf and the one who stands between us and God pleading for us. These people are with me. And they're mine, not because of what they've done, but because of their faith and their trust in me and what I've done. My life, my death, my resurrection. God, thank you that we have an example of your trustworthiness so much better than a torn cloak. We have the torn body of our Savior. We get to remember that every Sunday as we take a little piece of bread and we dip it in the juice. We remember this is so much better than we deserve. Thank you for not treating us like we deserved, but by your grace and your kindness and your mercy, you treat us so much better. I love you. Probably sings in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna move into a time of response. You guys can take communion in the back of the room when you're ready.